Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy. News that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, we take another look at the claims of the Bible translation organization Wycliffe Associates and John Ortberg's former church, Menlo Church in Menlo Park, California, has yet more troubles. We begin today with a story from the United Methodist Church, which has been in turmoil for the last few years over doctrinal and other issues. Yeah, all those issues are involved in the story that we have today of the largest United Methodist Church in the Atlanta metropolitan region and one of the largest churches in the denomination. It announced this week that it was leaving the denomination over the reassignment of its lead pastor. Earlier this month, Bishop Sue Heppert Johnson reassigned the Reverend Jody Ray, the pastor of Mount Bethel United Methodist Church in Marietta, Georgia, to a newly created position related to racial reconciliation in the North Georgia Conference of the United Methodist Church. Rather than leave the church where he has served since 2016, though, Ray announced at a virtual press conference on Monday morning that he was surrendering his credentials as an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, and the church simultaneously decided to disaffiliate with the United Methodist denomination. Oh, those sound like drastic moves. Yeah, the pretty drastic moves just over in a reassignment matter, but uh, they've also been a long time coming. This reassignment is really just sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back. Now, Rustin Parsons is the lay leader of the church, and he said in that same virtual press conference that these decisions were motivated by what he calls the recent actions of our bishop and the direction of the United Methodist denomination. There it is right there that you can see that this is about much more than just this reassignment. He went on to say that both the leadership and members of Mount Bethel strongly believe it is time for us to part ways with the denomination. And we should add that it is common for bishops to reassign clergy in the United Methodist Church. Yeah, that's right. It is. And again, that's another reason why just a simple reassignment process wouldn't be reason for leaving the church. It's really just emblematic of so much more. But traditionally, to get back to your point, uh, clergy in the United Methodist Church get reassigned every three years or so. Uh, that goes back to the circuit writing days of Methodist clergy. One of the positive aspects of these frequent reassignments is that churches don't get too dependent on a single pastor. You might say a celebrity preacher. Uh, but over the years, that practice has come under increased scrutiny from Methodists themselves. Uh, they say it's not necessarily biblical. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to do something like this. It's certainly disruptive for clergy families. Some say it puts too much power in the hands of bishops, uh, bishops who have become increasingly liberal in recent years. And these uh, Bishops, because of all of these reasons, the smart ones have started leaving successful pastors alone uh, as long as the churches are thriving. That's why this story, though a local one, is, as I've said a couple of times already, emblematic of the divisions in the United Methodist Church, which, by the way, is the second largest Protestant denomination in the country. 
So what's happening next? Well, the United Methodists are in the process of splitting into two denominations already. The new conservative church body will be called the Wesleyan Covenant Association. And by the way, Mount Bethel had been a prominent church uh, in that wing of the um, denomination. However, the church's decision to leave the United Methodist Church before that final split of the denomination has been settled is causing a little bit of disquiet from both sides. Uh, I think that this is another story which we'll have to uh, continue to follow for a while until we reach the final outcome. Warren, let's move along to our next story, and it involves Menlo Church in Menlo Park, California, a church that has already been in the news recently. Yeah, John Ortberg, a pretty famous guy, an author and so on, was the longtime pastor there. He resigned last year in the midst of controversy, and now comes news that the worship director there, or I should say the former uh, worship director now, because he was terminated last month. According to an April 19th statement from leaders of Menlo Church, former worship director Michael Bryce Jr. admitted that he had solicited nude photos from a member of the church where he was formerly employed. Not Menlo Church, by the way, but a an earlier church that he had been at. It turns out that this church member that he had solicited the nude photos from, as if that wasn't bad enough, also happened to be a minor, uh, though Bryce said at the time that he didn't know that the victim was a minor. This happened some years ago, I understand. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but the victim uh, has said that recent cases of pastoral sexual misconduct that have been in the news triggered his memory of the incident, spurring him to seek help from a therapist and then ultimately to notify Menlo Church at that time, Bryce's employer. And the police were notified too. Yeah, they were. However, the police investigation was unable to determine whether the young man was 16, 17, or 18 years old when the solicitations occurred, and was also unable to confirm whether the solicitation occurred within its jurisdiction, leading to the decision by the district attorney not to pursue the case in court. But the church terminated Bryce um, and saying that he demonstrated poor judgment, notified church members the next day. Uh, church leaders said it had not received any other reports of misconduct while Bryce was on staff at Menlo, but that a forensic specialist would examine his work computer. An independent party, a group called Zero Abuse, has also been engaged to handle any potential accusations, the leaders of Menlo Church said. And you say that this is the second time in recent months that this scandal has rocked Menlo Church. Yeah, you know, I mentioned John Ortberg a little bit ago. He resigned in July of 2020 after fallout from allegations that he had let a volunteer who had admitted being attracted to children uh, work with the kids in the church and the community. Now, that volunteer was later revealed to be Ortberg's own son, Johnny Ortberg III. Warren, our next story involves a TV preacher that Ministry Watch has been following literally for decades. Yeah, that's right. And that TV preacher is none other than Benny Hinn, uh, a U.S. district court in New York has ruled that Benny Hinn's 
World Healing Center Church is liable for more than $3 million in overdue payments to a mail house that provided printing and mailing services for the ministry. Mail America Communications brought the lawsuit against World Healing Center Church in September of 2018 after repeated attempts to collect the debt, saying that the church had fallen progressively farther behind in payments since the two organizations had been doing business together Way back, uh, they started in 2006. Mail America said the church at one time owed more than $5.6 million uh, to them. That was in 2012. Oh, that is a lot of money. Yeah, it is. And since 2012, it's also been the source of conflict between the church and the mailhouse, a conflict that ultimately culminated with this month's judgment against Benny Hinn. By the way, I should also mention, as you mentioned a few moments ago, Natasha, that Ministry Watch has been covering World Healing Center Church and Benny Hinn Ministries for years. We give them a, an F transparency grade because they don't release their Form 990s. Uh, they don't uh, do regular audits and reviews and make them available to the public, and they're also not available, not a member of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. Uh, Ministry Watch does not recommend in giving to ministries that are not financially transparent. Let's look at one more story before our break. There was a big development at one of the largest churches in the country, Watermark Church in Dallas. Yeah, embattled Dallas megachurch, um, Watermark, you might say. Their senior pastor, Todd Wagner, has resigned from his position after accusations of spiritual abuse led the elders to question his leadership at Watermark Community Church. Uh, elder and staff member David Leventhal stepped down from both roles in March, citing an erosion of trust in Wagner's ability to lead. The church, founded by Wagner and a group of friends in 1999, is elder-led. Uh, the statement, which was signed by elders Kyle Thompson and Mickey Friedrich, said that Wagner and Leventhal will continue to serve together on an elder emeritus board. Uh, Wagner had previously taken a leave of absence in September of 2020 to work on what he called pride issues after a blog published allegations from church members citing spiritual abuse uh, when they wavered from a church covenant that all members were required to sign. When Wagner took his leave, he told the congregation that he was not guilty of disqualifying sins such as sexual immorality or financial misconduct or even foul language, which would disqualify him according to that church. He returned to the pulpit in January uh, during a church service announcing Wagner's resignation this past Sunday. Members of the elder board did confirm that Wagner had not done anything that would disqualify him from future ministry. Warren, we need to take a break here, but when we return, we'll take a closer look at some of the claims made by Bible translation organization Wycliffe Associates. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. 
Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, let's continue with the story of an organization you've been following for quite a while. Yeah, Wycliffe Associates is a Bible translation organization that has been the subject of scrutiny from Ministry Watch for making unsubstantiated claims about its Bible translation process. It now claims to be starting 30 new Bible translation projects in Indonesia. According to a press release from Wycliffe Associates, it is working with nationals in Indonesia to translate the Bible for a remote language group. It's the first piece of literature that that group will have in their language, at least according to that press release from Wycliffe Associates. I mean, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. Isn't it good that the Bible is translated into these new languages? Well, you'd think that the answer to that question would be an obvious yes. Uh, for 2,000 years, Christians would likely, in fact, have said yes to that question without any reservation whatsoever. Today, however, that question and its answer uh, needs to be a little nuanced. Uh, It can cost a million dollars to translate the entire Bible into a new language, and the vast majority of people, more than 90%, have Bibles in languages that they speak already. Uh, We're now mostly translating Bibles into languages that only a few thousand people actually speak. Okay, but shouldn't those few hundred people still have a chance to have the Bible? Well, they should, but here's the thing. In most cases, they already do. Most Americans speak one language. I know I do. I know a little bit of Spanish, but mostly it's English for me. Most of the rest of the world, though, is not like that. They speak two and three languages, sometimes four languages. In Indonesia, for example, more than 50% of the population speak two languages fluently. 17% speak three languages. And here's another factor. Most of the people who don't have the Bible in their language don't want it, Uh, but they often do want to learn a another language. It's counterintuitive, but missionaries could actually have more success in their evangelism and discipleship efforts and actually be serving people in ways that they want to be served if they would teach the Bible in what is sometimes called an aspirational language, not in their native language, but in a language that they want to learn. I see your point. And these issues are more complicated than they seem at first. Well, they are, and there's also this. Some Bible translation organizations have existed for centuries, and they've been doing things for so long and in the same way that a lot of their practices have just simply gone unexamined. Uh, These organizations are old and venerable and generally have a good reputation, so we kind of just take their word for it when they say they're doing good things and producing good results. So, for example, Wycliffe Associates didn't respond to our repeated request uh, for a list of the languages that they they were translating, the number of people who speak those languages, whether these people also speak other languages, how much the translations will cost, and when they'll be complete. Or in our next story is about a Christian radio station in Florida, but it's also about a lot more than that. It's about the phenomenon you call founder syndrome. 
Yeah, the story started out because I got interested in that idea of a founder's syndrome and particularly in um, something that I had read about called founder's protection clauses. What are they? Well, founders' protection clauses are pretty rare, uh, but not completely unheard of in for-profit organizations, especially technology startups that start to take on investor capital. Um, There are clauses in the bylaws of an organization, or they might be a separate contractual agreement, that protects the founders of an organization from being fired if the ownership of the founder is diluted by new investor money to the point where they no longer have a controlling stake in the company. Now, if they're rare in for-profit companies, they're almost unheard of in nonprofit organizations. Yeah, that's right. In fact, I consulted with David Bay, an attorney who specializes in nonprofit law. He says that he's helped incorporate hundreds of nonprofit organizations in his career. And he said that he rarely sees it, fewer than one in a hundred situations. He also said that when he does see it, he tries to talk the founders out of incorporating those clauses into the bylaws. He says that a nonprofit organization is not a business that you own. It is for the public good, not for personal gain. But you found one of these founder protection clauses in WPOZ in Orlando, Florida. I did. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why this uh, story became you know, interesting to me. You would think it's ostensibly just a local story, but the more I looked, the more kind of unusual things I found there. Jim Hogue is the founder of a radio station in Florida, uh, WPOZ, as you mentioned. Sometimes it's just called The Z. It's pretty well known all throughout Central Florida. And it's had a lot of success over the years, but the founder protection clause in the bylaws of that organization m- make it virtually impossible possible to fire Jim Hogue. Plus, the board there is made up almost entirely of employees of the station. Five board members and four of them are either Jim Hogue himself or three employees of the stations. They themselves would be fired if they tried to fire Jim Hogue. Well, that doesn't sound like a good situation. Well, it's not, and the consequences are starting to show up in the way the station is run. I've written two stories about that station already, and they're uh, raising questions about not only the Founders Protection Clauses, but this whole issue of Founders Syndrome, which is the tendency of the founder of a nonprofit to forget that the organization exists, as David Bay said, for the public good and not for him. Or her. Well, yeah, of course, or her. Um, In fact, I should say that's just one of several things that I should have mentioned and didn't uh, in our time together here, Natasha. If you want to look at that entire um, series of stories, you should go to ministrywatch.com and stay tuned. We're going to devote a Ministry Watch extra episode to the phenomenon of founder syndrome in the weeks ahead. Well, COVID is in the news this week, and this week it relates to a ministry in Florida that is selling allegedly bogus COVID cures and targeting an evangelical audience. Yeah, last week, a Florida grand jury indicted Mark Greenan and his three sons for conspiracy to commit fraud and criminal contempt. The four leaders, uh, these four men were leaders of the Genesis 2 Church of Health and Healing, uh, which is actually a business run out of their single-family home in Bradenton, Florida. Uh, They're hawking chlorine dioxide as a miracle mineral solution, not only for COVID, but also for cancer and autism. But not only does the miracle mineral solution not work, 
but the chemicals in it can be dangerous. They turn into bleach whenever they hit your stomach, and they've made a lot of people sick, according to the complaint. Warren, we're going to take another quick break, but when we return, our weekly lightning round of ministry news. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, we like to end our segment with a quick lightning round of shorter news briefs. So what do you have first? Well, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on Monday in a consolidation of two cases that would potentially require California nonprofit organizations to disclose the names of major donors with their Form 990s. Both of these cases trace back almost a decade to when California began requiring nonprofits in 2013 to divulge a list of major donors, and by major I mean $5,000 or more. Christian and conservative groups have said that forcing nonprofits to divulge their donor lists make these donors vulnerable to harassment. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom is representing the conservative group, the Thomas More Center, in this case. And it's important to note that even some liberal groups have written in favor of the conservative group's position, citing freedom of speech and other First Amendment concerns. And who do you have in the ministry spotlight this week? Well, it's a group that I just mentioned, Alliance Defending Freedom. ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, began in 1993 with the purpose of serving as a legal organization uh, that advocates for the right of people to freely live out their faith. Uh, They've grown into a massive organization over the years, more than $62 million in revenue last year. And this is not the first case, the one we just talked about, that they've argued before the Supreme Court. In fact, they've argued many cases before the Supreme Court, and They have won most of them. And of course, we have a new edition of the Ministries Making a Difference column. Who's in it this week? Well, One Mission Ministries, which is headed by missionary Abraham Barberi, he is in Matamoros, Mexico. He's opened a Bible institute there for church members in Mexico. The institute offers certificates in ministry, in teaching Sunday school, and in leadership. Uh, Part of the school has been converted into a shelter for asylum seekers that are stuck at the border. Uh, One Mission was feeding and sheltering 106 men, women, and children in mid-April. The ministry has also started construction on a 
Partner Bible Institute down in Ecuador. Also in the Ministries Making a Difference column, we've got Convoy of Hope. Uh, They have um, implemented an agriculture program that is now operating in 13 countries since it began in Haiti in 2011, training vulnerable farmers to develop self-sustaining programs and food security for their own communities. In fact, last year it trained more than 15,000 people. Warren, with that, we have to bring today's program to a close. Do you have any final notes before we go? Well, I do have just one. I I wanted to to let our listeners know that we now have my book, Faith-Based Fraud, available for sale to the public. Last year, you may remember, we self-published an edition of about 500 copies, and they quickly sold out. We gave them away to donors who made contributions to the ministry, and we're really grateful for that. But now we have a real publisher, Wild Blue Press out of Denver, Colorado, and they're bringing out a hardback, a paperback, an ebook, and an audio book version of Faith-Based Fraud. The paperback and ebook versions are now available, and you can find them by going to Amazon or any other online book retailer. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Christina Darnell, Rod Pritzer, Steve Raby, Adele Banks, Bob Smetania, Ann Steich, Emily Miller, and you, Warren. And I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I am Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.